Hello, Fro listeners, and welcome to a Sunday drop of the Fear the Fro podcast. I was going to sit on this till Monday, but I thought better of it. And rather than wait, since we've got a game tomorrow night and there's news that Evan Mobley is probably going to return, he'll be on a minute's restriction, just an exciting day for Cavalier basketball. Let's waste no time, shall we? One thing I want to plug before we get to my guest. If you have not participated with the audio mailbag yet, I would encourage you to take part. You go to CavsPod.com, the website of the Fear the Fro podcast, and there is a button that is labeled Talk to Bob. It is on every page of the website. You click that, it brings up a little recording portal that allows you to leave a essentially a digital voicemail. You can leave any type of comment, question that you want, and it's a way for us to interact more. I want this podcast to be less of just me and more of us. So to those who have participated, thank you. To those who may in the future, do it. Joining me on the Fear the Fro Pod is one of my good friends in the pre- and post-game voice of the LA Clippers Radio Network, also one of the hosts of the Clips and Dip podcast. You've heard him before. He's back again on the brink of this matchup between just two recent juggernauts, the L.A. Clippers and the Cleveland Cavaliers. Adam Osland joining me on the show. Adam, thank you for carving out time. What's up, Bob? Yeah, it sucks to be the other 28 teams, right? I know, I know. Sometimes sometimes the rich get richer, and that's been basically the story of the last month and a half for us, the last two months for you. Just some incredible streaks going on. The Cavaliers, of course, 14 of their last 18. Much of that coming in the absence of Darius Garland and Evan Mobley, but if they have not been paying attention to the Clippers, this is a team that has been playing dominant basketball. Adam, would you like to fill them in on some of the uh, context of just how dominant the LA Clippers have been? I mean, it goes back further than that, really. Once they've started bringing Russell Westbrook off the bench, something I requested back in July when the trade rumors were swirling regarding James Harden. I knew you couldn't have two ball-dominant guys like that in the backcourt. Once they empowered James Harden to take the keys, to take the controller and take the controls of the offense, this Clippers team... With Terrence Mann in the starting lineup next to him, they have won 27 of their last 34 games. They have won 22 of their last 26 since December. They've won 13 of their last 15, and they just blew out Boston in Boston uh, in a game where they won by 19, and it wasn't even that close. They were up by as many as 36. Uh, Okay. See, this is one of my favorite things. I, I went back and I watched that game in preparation of our conversation because during the course of the game, I wasn't watching in real time. And then I started to see people some way midway through the third quarter uh, tweeting screen caps of score differentials at different points. It, with nine and a half minutes left in the third quarter, uh, your team went on a 21-0 run from that point forward in the third quarter. And and one of my favorite things to look at after games is garbage time on cleaningtheglass.com. <laughs> where, you would. Where cleaning the glass weights you know, statistics based on the idea of, well, we're not going to count the ones that come in absolutely meaningless basketball. So my question after seeing the third quarter close, I mean, the Celtics ripped off seven in a row to end the third, and it still wasn't within 30 points. They threw out the entire fourth quarter, <laughs> which is clearly the sign of an absolutely dominant victory. And it couldn't be more of a tale of two games because of the losses that the Clippers have taken this season, probably the worst one I would think was maybe the Boston one earlier in the year. And to turn around and just brutalize them on a back-to-back, no less, 
you have to be feeling pretty good. Well, and that win by Boston at Crypto was without Kawhi Leonard. Granted, they didn't have Porzingis in that game still. They didn't have Porzingis in yesterday's game. The Clippers were without Avita Zubats, but obviously that still advantaged Clippers there with that trade-off. That third quarter, when the floodgates opened and the Clippers just continued to play defense and defense was leading to offense and that 21-0 run, look, they had a 22-0 run to clean things up against the Brooklyn Nets after a poor performance where all of a sudden in the fourth quarter they decided to flip a switch. They were down 18 in the fourth to Brooklyn, and they go on a 22-0 run and win a game by 11 where they were down 18 with 10 minutes left in that fourth quarter. It's unbelievable what they're doing right now, but Kawhi Leonard in that third had 14 yesterday against Boston. And that spinning turnaround dunk off of Peyton Pritchard, and then he just dunked it on half the Boston Celtics team with authority. For anyone who doesn't realize Kawhi Leonard is back from the ACL injury in his second season now, I mean, even if you go back to the last three months of last year, he was at 53-47-90 splits the last three months and the two games into the playoffs before tearing the meniscus against the Phoenix Suns. That's how good he was for three months. Right now, Kawhi Leonard has been even better than that, which makes it even crazier he's not an all-star game starter. But I know it's a popularity contest, but I do want to put out his numbers of what he's doing right now. Kawhi Leonard is at 58% from the field and 50% from three over his last 24 games where the Clippers are 21-3 and three in the last 24 games Kawhi Leonard has played. And he's getting 25 per game off those shooting splits. It's kind of shocking to think that somebody as efficient and deadly as Kawhi Leonard isn't a Western Conference all-star starter. And then you look at who they have out there. The, the way that the voting ended, essentially, he and Paul George finished fifth and sixth. Uh, the the three starters, LeBron, Jokic, Durant, they were followed by Anthony Davis and then Kawhi and Paul George. Now, uh, as far as the media votes go, uh, Kawhi Leonard did reasonably well. The media rank landed him at fourth. The fan rank landed him at sixth and the player rank landed him at fourth. But the front court in the Western Conference is it's almost an impossible task now when you look at the guys who are on that list. I understand it. It's all about popularity when it comes to the all-star voting. But for Kawhi Leonard to be a top 75 player ever, while having his best regular season ever, to not be voted in over guys like LeBron, and I understand, Bob, there's still a lot of feelings there, I'm sure, and I don't want to go I will end this interview immediately. (laughs) Shut your fucking mouth! Tread carefully. (laughs) I'm just saying, individually, he's having a better season. Team success, not even close. Not even close. Yes, LeBron (laughs) is, if anyone is going to be voted in or, you know, I heard this line from John Fox back in the day on Pro Bowls because I grew up a Carolina Panthers fan. And he said, you know, stars usually, um, it takes one year too long for them to get in and one year too long for them to get out because you have a reputation built up. And that's what's happening with LeBron James now. Kawhi Leonard obviously is more deserving. Does he care? No. I do do want to make this point, though, regarding the All-Star game. When you are comparing careers, just throw out All-Star games and votes and where they ended up because they're so skewed. But that's my problem. Like the, The accolades, this is a resume. 
This is affecting guys' money at times, and they're not taking it seriously enough. When the players are out there, Kobe Brown got votes for the Clippers. He's played about 10 games from players. That was probably just L.A. fans who are confused that Kobe didn't posthumously end up on the all-star ballot. (laughs) Okay, that's good. (laughs) But no, it it was part of the player vote. Part of the player vote voted for Giannis's brother. What are we doing here? I don't know. I wish I wish it was uh, – I, I don't know if there's a perfect formula for it, but it seems like the media gets things a lot more right when it comes to all-NBA voting. Well, now let me ask you, so who would have been your three starters? I mean, I think it's clear that you would have put Kawhi over LeBron. Uh, would you keep the other two the same? Yeah, I, I'm okay with that. Uh, with the what Luke has been doing, with what SGA – that's the thing. SGA is playing in OKC. Is he deservedly in over Steph Curry? Hell yes, with the season he is having. But you would have thought popularity contest-wise, Steph Curry still would have been an all-star game starter, just like LeBron James is. But they actually righted what would have been a wrong there with making sure SGA got in. I, yeah, I'd i be fine with it as long as Kawhi Leonard was in there somehow, some way, either over LeBron or over KD. It's not the end of the world. He doesn't care, but... It's just an overall gripe with the All-Star game, which you think about it, what's the most impressive moment in an All-Star game? What was the most memorable moment? It was Magic freaking Johnson who was out of the league in 92 getting to play in the game. Like That's how (laughs) meaningless most of them have been, especially over the last 20 years now. Speaking of Steph, though, and LeBron, since we've brought that up, I need to Mm. touch upon this uh, to you. Last night, um, one of the disappointing things, Clippers fans can't, win even when they win in some regards because a game that should have dominated the headlines yesterday an absolute beatdown of the Celtics by the Clippers was perhaps displaced by what followed with the Lakers because a double overtime thriller between them and the Warriors uh, ended on something which must have just drove Skip Bayless insane. Two free throws in a row from LeBron James after being fouled in what was just a just a terrible foul by Draymond it's- Green. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. It's it's weird how uh, he always criticizes LeBron for being scared to go to the basket late in games because he doesn't want to get fouled. Yet in the game seven, he had to hit that a free throw in 2016 for you guys to come back down 3-1 to put them away where Draymond Green hacked him so hard. Think about it. If he doesn't hack him like that, we're talking about the greatest dunk of all time. The most historic <laughs> dunk over Draymond to win the championship. And people will say LeBron James is shying away from that stuff. And by people, I mean it's guys like Skip Bayless who push these false narratives. But I was happy for LeBron to see him hit both of those, honestly, even though obviously I'm not a big Laker fan. Well, you know who um, wasn't happy? I, I might comment on the uh... – the free throws that they shot, but my mom is here right now, and I, I want to be on my best behavior, so I'm, I'm not going to uh, comment on the 43 free throws to our uh, 16. I'm not going to comment on Steph shooting three free throws in 43 minutes. Um, yeah, so I'm not going to comment on that. Steve Kirk clearly a bit miffed about the free throw differential. This is not an infrequent criticism of teams that fall to the Lakers. Four of the top 10 free throw differential games this season have come to benefit the LA Lakers. And to the Golden State Warriors point, three of the top 10 worst free throw differentials that have happened this season have happened against them. So so clearly this is 
exacerbating the issue. The Warriors have never been a team this year that gets a lot of free throws. The Lakers have been the team that gets the most free throws. But did you take issue with anything particularly in terms of how the game was officiated last night? Full disclosure, I caught the second half, obviously. I was doing Clippers post game. I was very interested in the free throw disparity going on. I saw some of the comments already on Twitter. But I saw this. Per Synergy, the Warriors attempted 70 jump shots last night, and that was in a game that was played at 58 minutes because double overtime. That doesn't help you get to the line very often. Or there's smoke, there's fire. And I think going back to what happened in Boston last year with LeBron complaining like that after getting obviously hit by Jason Tatum, something changed because from that point on, the Lakers in the next 20 games were plus 200 in the free throw category. It just seemed like the league took notice. We saw the apology on Twitter. It keeps them up late at night, the officials, <laughs> when they get calls wrong like that. I'd never seen anything like that in my entire life, but uh, they said that for the Lakers. I, I wish Twitter was around back when the Lakers got 27 free throws in a must-win game six against my Sacramento Kings back in 2002. I wish Twitter was around for that because it would have effing melted because of how bad that game was and how consequential that game was for a dynasty with Kobe and Shaq and helping them out and saving them. 27 free throws in a fourth quarter. But you go back to the Raptors game. And my new hero, Darko, going off post game, saying if it's going to be like this, why should we even show up for the ball game afterwards? And it goes back the 88 championship won by the Lakers in game six when Isaiah Thomas has maybe the greatest finals quarter of all time, scoring 24 points on what looked like a broken or severely sprained ankle. They got free throws on a foul on Lambeer on Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on a sky hook that put them up to win that game and extend that series and eventually win in seven. And nobody remembers how amazing that performance was from Isaiah Thomas. That might have been the greatest finals performance, and nobody cares because the Lakers got free throws and ended up winning it. In the most physical era ever, somehow on the most touchy phantom foul from Bill freaking Lambeer, the Lakers ended up benefiting from it. So it's not the first time, and I'm not trying to sound like a Laker hater, although I'm sure no one will care on this podcast. Nobody gives a shit here. just like LeBron is, that much. This is a safe but, space. If anything, this builds up the validity of everything that LeBron accomplished in Cleveland because he didn't do it with the, the benefit of the ignorant Lakers fans voting him into perfection and the stupid free throw disparity. He earned it through his play on the court. Did things the right way. Salient yeah, point, exactly. Bob. Exactly. Thank you. Uh, so one other thing, I'm sorry, I'm uh, Cavalier fans, you're just going to have to bear with me. I don't get to talk to Adam as much as I used to, and this is my chance to touch on all the league stories. We are going to get into Cavs Clippers a little bit here. One last thing. Yesterday, for the, what is it, fifth game in a row since 2019, Joel Embiid did not play against the Denver Nuggets. This time he wasn't even on the injury report. I just was wondering how you felt about the whole thing. I uh, I don't know if he's ducking smoke. I've seen the record head to head. He's six and six and two against the Denver Nuggets and Nikola Jokic, but those two losses came in Denver, where apparently uh, he wasn't ready to play last night. I I know this is one of your big crusades here to uh, <laughs> go after Joel Embiid, not one of your favorites. Because of the foul baiting, especially from a guy at that size, it makes things even worse. But 
in terms of head to head against Nikola Jokic and him, I that's one of my favorite matchups in the NBA. So I just wish we got to see it last night. Me too. It's really just a disservice to all the young children who probably drove hundreds of miles to see that game to arrive there and have Joel Embiid do them like that. Just a low, low move. Disgusting. Anyway, let's keep it moving. I just, I wanted to touch upon it, but my, as you stated, my feelings are well known. The Cavaliers and the Clippers. Okay, the Cavs, 8-6 and six versus the Western Conference. The Clippers, 9-3 and three versus the Eastern Conference, and quite the point differential on them. Do you have any real concerns that the Clippers won't just roll through my Cleveland Cavaliers? What are your fears? What are the things that you believe you need to stop as a Clippers unit in order to prevent this Cavalier team from humiliating you on a grand stage. Well, how many votes for uh, the All-Star game did Sam Merrill get? Because uh, that guy stole Steph Curry's powers. I was just looking through his game log and seeing all these eight three-pointer games, wondering where this came from and if that is the biggest catalyst for the Cavs being, what, winning 14 of their last 18 ball games now? I... Didn't see that coming, uh, especially with the injuries they have had. It's very impressive. So we're talking about two of the hottest teams in the league right now facing off. And I guess my biggest concern would be that the Clippers have a bit of a letdown after having a win like that in Boston on the second night of a back-to-back, no less. Uh, not that you know it's a trap game. The Cavaliers are very good. I think it's going to be really tough. On this seven-game Grammy road trip, I predicted the Clippers to go 4-3. and three. They're 2-0 and oh so far. So I knew there would be some losses in there somewhere, I would have guessed. Uh, it's still early, but the Cavaliers are dangerous. Uh, and Donovan Mitchell, I don't know if he's playing with a chip on his shoulder because he wasn't voted in as an Eastern Conference All-Star. I'm sure you've talked about that, Bob. Yeah, well, he was in my heart. That's the important thing. If it, this is, it, it did feel particularly satisfying on Friday to watch the Cavaliers just dominate in the second half of that game against the Bucks and win. Because, you know, most of our wins during the stretch, if we're being completely honest, have not come against the best teams in the world. But after beating the Bucks by 40 points, a game in which Okoro absolutely shut down Dame Lillard, 0 for 9 against Isaac Okoro as his primary defender in that career game for George Yang, where the Cavs won by 40. But then Giannis comes back. He doesn't play in that first game uh, in January here. And Wednesday... They end up defeating us by 10 points, and Dame Lillard and Giannis play very well. They get to the line quite frequently, and Dame doesn't look like the same guy he looks like in that 40-point blowout. Then Friday comes around, second half of basketball. The Bucks have a three-point lead, and they put the clamps on Dame, and he puts up just a 1-for-12 half. Meanwhile, Donovan Mitchell, 15 points, leads the way for the Cavaliers in a 12-point victory that felt very important. Cavs fans have been eager to see these teams right now. The Clippers, the Bucks, fully healthy ideally. That Giannis game that where he sat, you don't take much from that. But to get these last two games, to see the Cavs battle back, to see Jared Allen continue his career stretch of basketball here, and then to have a test against perhaps the hottest team in basketball. Because say what you will about the Cavaliers, but we've all heard the qualifiers. The qualifiers are that, okay, you've won 14 of 18 without Darius Garland and Mobley, but we don't believe it because it's come against worse competition. Well, the Clippers... Since the beginning of December, they're the best team in basketball, net differential-wise. They're the best offense in basketball. They're a top-10 defense. 
The Cavaliers, since the turn of the year, best team in basketball, their deep offense has finally climbed into the top 10, primarily because of what you pointed out. Sam Merrill and the shooters and the bench have been playing incredible basketball. Their points off the bench this month have gone from a year ago in January, 28 points a game, to this month over 50 points a game off the bench. The point of attack defense has looked great. Turning to Isaac and Dean Wade as starters has greatly improved their ability to take out some individual matchups. And the Clippers are one of these teams where you look at them and decisions are going to have to be made. How do you designate defenders here? Who do you put on Kawhi? Who do you put on Paul George? How do you slow down James Harden and this offense, which is playing just record pace basketball over the course of the last two months? So I think it's definitely a test Cavs fans are eager for. Uh, And a strong showing, even in a loss, would go a long way to silence some of the skeptics about the validity of this recent Cavalier run. Look, I'm not taking the Cavs lightly at all. And even looking at some of their wins, and I know they've beaten the Washington Wizards a couple of times and the San Antonio Spurs during this run, but they've looked dominant to me. When they're winning, they're often winning big against these teams. They're handling their business. They're putting them away. They're destroying them. They're not just scraping by. I do think how you win matters, but this Clippers team is creating what I'm saying is unsolvable problems where you have to pick your poison each and every night. Do you want to lose doubling Kawhi Leonard and him finding the open man? Do you want to lose trying to put three on James Harden when he enters the paint where he's going to find the open man to kick it out to as they've been the best three-point shooting team this season? Like, It's just there are so many ways they can beat you right now. They didn't even shoot the three ball well in Boston at all. They were 10 for 40. They didn't shoot it well in Toronto. It doesn't matter. They're getting 70 points in the paint all of a sudden. So it will be a good test for the Cavaliers, but I see it the same way coming the Clippers uh, from the Clippers' point of view. This Cavaliers team is very good. They're very good at home, and I think it's one of the best matchups of the season. Now, I don't know if that plays in the Clippers' favor because the lights are going to be a little bit brighter. And, you uh, maybe son of a Jared bitch. Allen. <laughs> you son of a bitch. Okay, that's a, that's a good pivot point because I don't think you probably heard the pod that I dropped yesterday. Why would you? You had a full day of you know Clippers stomping the Celtics and then whatever the fuck that Lakers game was. But one of the topics recently has been, it comes from the Low Post podcast. A lot of conversation has happened on the national podcasting circuit because of this recent stretch of hot basketball by the Cavaliers. And certainly one of the side effects of this run of Cavalier basketball has been as people look at things to grasp onto as to, well, why are they so good without Mobley and Garland? Maybe Mobley and Garland are the the problem. Tim Bontemps had the following to say. I think you have to have real questions about the viability of Evan Mobley and Jared Allen as pairing going forward. And frankly, the Cavs have been better this year when only Jared Allen has played compared to when only Evan Mobley has played. And I think, I mean, to me, Evan Mobley's been one of the more disappointing players in the league this year before he got hurt. He has not improved on offense at all. I disagree with the masses on how good he is as a defensive player. Like I thought that Jared Allen was just better than him last year. Um, I think he's a good, very good defensive player, but not one of the three or four best in the league. If you're a non-shooting four, which is what Evan Mobley is, that's probably the least valuable player in the league in terms of positional archetype. And Evan Mobley struggled at center this year before Jared Allen came back when he was hurt at the beginning of the year. The Cavs struggled, and he's shown no growth as a shooter from the perimeter. Now keep in mind, 
This was a conversation about the successful run that the Cavaliers have been on. And Tim took the opportunity to say, you know, essentially, Mobley's overrated. Until we know what's happening with Mitchell, I have no faith in them. I'm curious if you have any strong feelings about the matter, one way or the other. What you see from your outsider perspective, what you think the best path moving forward for the Cavaliers is. From an outside perspective, from what I've seen, it really depends on what your expectations are for this Cavaliers team currently this year to say that something can't work. If you're saying two years from now they're still not going to be a contender should they hold on to Donovan Mitchell, then okay, maybe you have a point. But what's their ceiling right now? You guys trying to get to the second round? If you lost in the second round in six or seven games, would that be viewed as a successful season building off of losing in the first round last year? A strong showing in the second round, assuming their second round matchup is against one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference, I'd be absolutely satisfied with that. But what's really irritating about those comments to me, outside of just the general message he's trying to convey, is that it's very cherry-pickish. Evan, well, we struggled at center this year before Jared Allen came back when he was hurt at the beginning of the year. The Cavs struggled. That's true. Here's what's missing. Evan Mobley didn't struggle last year. When Jared Allen was out of the lineup on a much, much, much larger sample. Evan Mobley was the better player in the Knicks series. We can all acknowledge that. And as far as his points about this season, Jared Allen was hurt for the first five games of the year. And in that stretch, the Cavaliers went just two and three. And in that two and three start, we lost games to the Thunder by three points, a game in which we gave away a 9-0 run at the end of the fourth quarter on back-to-back-to-back triples. That's a loss to the best team in the West, a loss to the New York Knicks, and a loss to the Pacers. And in that Pacers game, neither Darius Garland or Donovan Mitchell played. Don't forget, after the opening night, Darius Garland missed the next four games. He returned the same night that Jared Allen returned. Do you think being without three of the top four Cavaliers, leaving Evan Mobley as the only one left on the court, might shade the on-court results a bit? I don't know. Crazy thought? It does. Now, if I was to go back a year, when Evan Mobley was a plus eight in nearly 1,700 minutes as a center, I'm sure Tim was equally adamant, right? As far as Evan Mobley, Mobley is the better offensive player, and he's a better, more impactful defender already. That sounds a little different. It almost sounds like a guy who believes in Evan Mobley. I don't know. I'm the biggest Jared Allen supporter there is, but for Tim Bontemps to take his success and then wield it like a hammer against Evan Mobley and say, well, these guys, I I knew. My issue here is not with a belief that the big men don't work together. It's with this duality of people who will point to this 18-game sample as the nail in the Mobley-Allen coffin but ignore 1,700 possessions last season, where they're nearly a plus 9, a plus 8.4, without the shooters that we have now, has to say something. If they're a plus 9, net rating-wise, together on the court per 100 possessions, it sounds like it can definitely work. Well, and that that was last year. This year, they've only played 16 games together, but they won 10 of those 16 games. And we're sitting here acting... Like, because the Cavaliers, in a soft part of the schedule, have had a nearly plus 20 net differential that somehow that data is valid if you want to turn it on our own lineup. But if you want to point it externally as to how the Cavs stack up against the rest of the NBA, well, then it's not valid. No, of course not. If it says good things, invalid. If it says bad things, totally valid. There are some people 
and many people in the media who like to pick and choose when the regular season matters and when it doesn't. I've heard the same stuff regarding James Harden now. When they were 0-5 to start things off with, with him, it was, see, it doesn't work. It can't work next to Kawhi and Paul George and Russell Westbrook. Now that it has worked, they say, well, show me in the playoffs. They move the goalposts that way. So I, I see uh, why you'd be annoyed and a little bit irked here, as I have heard. I get it, too. Give it time to play out when it's been that fruitful already. You don't need to make a decision like this. I don't think their expectations are to win the championship this season. Like we talked about, getting to the second round, competing against one of the quote-unquote big three in the Eastern Conference – that alone would show that this team is growing, developing, and progressing towards that ultimate goal, and you can continue to make moves, hopefully around the margins. Or if you do have to make a big move, okay, you think about that at some point, but I'm with you. I think it's more in the starting backcourt. I, I felt this way last year. I think what gets lost in in our loss to the Knicks is that, yeah, we got dominated on the boards, but a huge part of that for the Knicks was Josh Hart coming off the bench. It wasn't just Mitchell Robinson. He was the... You know, he was the head of the snake, so to speak. But Hartenstein coming off the bench, Josh Hart. Our our team got dominated on the boards, but more importantly, we got dominated off the bench. When we made that trade for Donovan Mitchell in the early part of September of last season that, okay, our first real opportunity to restock the bench was this past summer. And in adding Struess and adding Yang and finding Merrill out of the G League and elevating him into a more prominent role and just the natural progression of a Dean Wade and Isaac Okoro, it is night and day different. And when we take this stretch and and the conclusion is, oh, the Cavaliers are better without the two bigs. No, you dummies. What are you trying to do? We are in the sweet spot of being able to have excessive talent and still fit it all in under the tax aprons. Don't rush to blow this fucking thing up. Maybe, just maybe, the conclusion people should be reaching are the Cavaliers are better because they're a deeper, better shooting team that actually has movement shooters. There's questions as to how you'll integrate Mobley and Garland, but this idea that it's just going to completely eliminate everything we've seen during this stretch is wild to me. This was a brand new offensive system this season, and people want to take the injuries as indicative of, okay, well, once we got rid of Garland and Mobley, that's when things started to click. Maybe more games together, more time on the court with new teammates, all that stuff is a contributing factor to why the offense since the beginning of the year has gotten better and better and better and better. And that includes during the stretch right before uh, Garland and Mobley went down. So I have concerns, like everyone else, what will we see when some of these guys who have had the luxury of existing in higher usage roles are asked to dial back? Will it impact their performance on the court? But I would caution against this idea that we need to make vast roster changes based on this sample. Those kind of decisions should be based on more information, not less. On more information about the high leverage games, the games that matter, the playoff games. We only have five games in that sample right now, and they were very disappointing. 16 games together with these shooters, with Mobley and Allen, is not enough to make sweeping assessments about how this team needs to be constructed and how much we need to invest in the front court versus the back court yet. Hey, Bob, can I make a point here that if you go to tankathon.com and check out remaining strength of schedule, 
The Cavaliers are 28th. So it's not like it's going to get much tougher and they're entering the gauntlet or the teeth of their schedule the rest of the season. I'm going to say to some degree they are for real. Are they a championship contender in the East right now? I don't think so. There's too much of a talent disparity between them and the Milwaukee Bucks, the Boston Celtics, and even Philadelphia, and they can still make a move. But could they compete against one of those three teams in a playoff series? I think so. I feel great about their chances. I think the Knicks are going to look a lot better in the second half of this season after this trade. I definitely respect that squad. I think the Bucks are far more slayable this year. Their defense looks to have taken a significant step back. They look visibly older in the four games we played against them. We split that series. After we get through this Clippers game, we're right back to the toilet. Pistons, Grizzlies, Spurs, Kings are a solid squad. We play the Wizards and Nets and Raptors again. It's really not until after the trade deadline where things start to shift into, okay, you start to see the 76ers. We'll get the Mavericks again. You get some tougher opponents in there. But outside of this Clippers matchup, this is a very winnable slate. The Cavaliers could go a long way to not just cementing the fourth seed, because Julius Randle went down with a shoulder injury yesterday, too. That's the other thing. That's a team which we're jostling back and forth. They've played a few more games than us. It seems like every other day, they're fourth, we're fourth, they're fourth. But it's not just them. We could conceivably run down a Sixers team who fell to the Nuggets last night. Those matchups, those will be huge matchups as far as barometers for, okay, how much of this is valid? Because the Cavs had already beat Joel Embiid and the 76ers in the one time we played them during the end season tournament games. But we get to see them multiple times in the second half of this schedule. And that team, the Knicks, the Bucks, there's this discussion that there's this clear tier of three. And I think it's getting a little murkier. I think you could make the argument that what looked like three teams in the top tier and then the Cavs and the Knicks below is starting to look more like one team in the top tier and four teams in a tier just below. That being the Bucks, the Sixers, the Cavs, and the Knicks. Now, maybe I'll just talk with my head up my ass because I love the Cavs, but that's what I'm seeing. Yeah, and I'm not discounting Indiana, especially after bringing in Pascal Siakam and what they can do. I don't know if their playing style is going to translate great to the playoffs. We'll see. From an outsider perspective, it looks like people are extrapolating way too much out of that first-round playoff series against the New York Knicks, which granted was disappointing. The Cavs got bullied. I thought they were a better version of the Knicks heading into that series. I thought the Cavs were going to win in five games, but how long can you go with this narrative that the Cavs, you know, you can't trust them or whatever. What if they're 20, they've won 25 of their next 32 games by the time they get through this next soft part of the schedule. Like this team is going to be reckoned with at some point. People are going to come around on them, I believe. Well, and it's also kind of funny because we never point out the just the very obvious opposite side of that, which is that I'll fully acknowledge that the Cavs are beating some dog shit teams. But if you want to take results and weight them against the opponents, that's fine. But why didn't we do that in the first half of the season? Their record is still very comparable to what it was last year in their 51 season at a similar point, And we're trending up. I am very eager to see this game against the Clippers because I think the Clippers being in the market they're in, they just don't get the attention they deserve because this run has been historically great. They look fantastic. And meanwhile, I've got to listen to people telling me why Derek White, he he should be a, an all-star. Nobody even acknowledges James Harden comparably, a guy who's shifted into a, a less counting numbers role, but 
from every other metric, he's jumped through the roof. His three-point shooting, the best in years. Yeah, his counting stats aren't the same, but look at the team basketball the Clippers are playing. I didn't believe it. I'll be the first to admit. I had zero faith uh, that that would work, and he's dispelled that theory nearly instantaneously. Well, to your point of people not giving the Clippers enough respect because of the market and everything, I look at a culture that's being built there now. When people said it wouldn't work with Russell Westbrook and him coming over from the Lakers and he was a vampire in that locker room, well, it has. People said the same thing about James Harden. He can't change. When really, he's been playing like this to some degree the last couple of seasons ever since he left Houston. I mean, when Brooklyn was actually whole with him next to Kyrie and KD, they were the best team in the East. They were elite. And James Harden had already taken a back seat, was more of the playmaker in that role, did the same thing to help out Joel Embiid win an MVP last season. I I thought, and I said this day one, he would unlock the best version of Kawhi and Paul George because I saw what he did in Brooklyn next to KD and Kyrie. And you look at the efficiency from those guys, they're at all-time highs. I think Paul George, highest field goal percentage in a season, highest three-point percentage, highest free throw percentage. I don't know if James Harden helps there, but (laughs) it's just impressive to see how he can elevate guys around him so easily. Avita Zubats before he got hurt, and it is still a big loss on this team right now, especially going into Cleveland. Uh, He was having the best run of his career. He was getting 13 and 10 on almost 70% shooting. He's a top three rim protector as well, but they've never used his offensive capabilities enough until they got James Harden. He's unlocking the best and the utility of every player on this team right now. So, yeah, he should get more love. And, yeah, Derek White, 0 of 8, uh, two points yesterday, by the way. <laughs> well, you know, this has convinced me we're living a similar plight because no matter what happens – in the season, people are just going to always go back to show me in the postseason. But I do appreciate you carving out time to talk to me and talk to everybody on the Fear the Frill podcast. Well, I love you, Bob. You know that. You're a basketball savant. I'm sure your listeners have been learning that. But I'll just say this. People with agendas pick and choose when the regular season matters. That's how it works. I've seen this for years. It's happening to both of our teams right now. Okay, if people want to follow Adam, it's at follow Adam A on Twitter and check out the Clips and Dip podcast if you want to hear more uh, well-informed Clippers talk than I can provide. But Adam, there's nobody better. So Adam, thank you very much. We'll talk again. Uh, if we win, I may try to bring you back on so I can dog walk you a little bit, but probably not. I'll probably just let it lie. <laughs> I wouldn't do it to you. Bring me in, win or loss, Bob. I love you. Come on. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Adam. Uh, this has been Adam Oslin on the Fear the Fro podcast. Thank you to everybody who tuned in. If you have not, please rate, subscribe, review the podcast, and get in on the Talk to Bob feature on CavsPod.com. It's as simple as clicking a button on the webpage. You can make your comment. You could slander Adam. You could ask me a question. You could do whatever you want to do. 90 seconds, I will use the audio on the podcast. We will interact more. A lot of people have already jumped on it. I appreciate all of you, and thank you. Once again, this is the Fear the Fro podcast.